So an archaeologist in Israel the other day was digging in an ancient site and came across a mummy. So he calls the curator of a prestigious antiquities museum and says, I have just found a 3,000-year-old mummy of a man who died of a heart attack. Curator says, well, okay, bring him on in. We'll check it out. A few weeks later, the expert calls the archaeologist back. A stunned and amazed curator calls back and says, you know what, we've examined that money, that mummy and you are exactly correct about both the age of the mummy and the cause of death. But I just have one question, how on earth did you know? The archaeologist said, it was easy. In the mummy's hand was a slip of paper that said, 10,000 shekels on Goliath. Now, the fact that everybody gets that joke, whether you know the Bible or you you come to church a lot or whatever, is a testament to the popularity of today's scripture text. It is probably the most famous Bible story in the whole book, the story of David and Goliath. And as every preacher will tell you, it is much more difficult to preach on a familiar passage than an obscure one. And so I am going to rush in where angels fear to tread, and we're going to tackle David versus Goliath. It's in 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to attempt to tackle this passage in two Sundays, both this week and next week, and I felt like I could do that because it's David and Goliath. You know, I don't think anybody's going to be left on a cliffhanger. How does it end? You know, what happens? Uh, But uh, I'm assuming most folks know the story well. But if not, of course, it'll be good encouragement to read along in 1 Samuel on your own. As I've been working through the text, and I hope you'll work with me through it, I think there's so much here. So I thought it'd be good to preach through it and point out some key things along the way. There's so much here. There's so much about this story. There's so many insights and a lot of things people point out. Sometimes I scratch my head and I think, where did they get that? So I'm trying to stick to what's right here in the scriptures. And some, we'll find some markers along the way. And so uh, uh, instead of a, uh, I, I, I'm going to come to five markers. Instead of calling them five points, I thought uh, over the next two weeks we'll do, uh, how about this, we'll do five smooth stones uh, from this passage. And we'll, we'll cover three of the stones uh, this Sunday, uh, by God's grace. We'll see how far we get. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll cover uh, what, the balance of the text next Sunday. Sound like a plan? All right. So some markers along the way. Five smooth stones if you're a note taker. Like I said, hopefully we'll get to three of them. We'll see what happens. 1 Samuel 17, start in verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephestamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now, obviously, you can imagine militarily there's a a strategic reason why we are here now at a stalemate. 
The reason's obvious. The first army who charges into the valley has now committed themselves to that low ground. Militarily, that would be a death trap. So neither army wants to blink. Neither army wants to charge first. Sure, if they would both go down there and agree to meet in the middle, that's one thing. But who wants to be the commander of an army who takes the low ground first, putting yourself at a military disadvantage? So there's a stalemate in the battle. It's a draw. What's going to break the draw? What's going to break this tension? Verse 4 breaks it. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. Now this is an interesting word, this word champion. Uh, In Hebrew, it literally means an in-between man. Isn't that great? An in-between man. Here's your army. Here's our army. And here's the man in between, the champion, the representative. He was named here, a champion named Goliath of Gath. Now, if you've been following along, we've been preaching this series all through 1 Samuel. You may remember Gath. Gath was one of the five cities of the Philistines. And this Goliath fellow was massive. His height was six cubits in a span, which works out to something like nine feet, nine inches. Now, this in-between man has the... uh, has, has the idea here, why, look, why all this bloodshed? Why would we just charge uh, into, the, into the valley? Besides, if one of us wins this war, what good is the territory and the land we've overtaken if we don't have any people? What good's a kingdom if you don't have any subjects? So instead, uh, we'll send out our in-between man. You send your in-between man. And if we win, then all the people will be credited with the victory of the in-between man, of the champion. And likewise, if your guy wins, then all the victory will be credited to you all. Got that? The champion will win the victory, and his victory will be credited. The victory of the one will be credited to the many. Now, notice how the narrative slows down. Remember we've said over and over again, narrative books in the Bible are a different genre, obviously, than uh, uh, books like epistles or uh, even uh, gospels and uh, the uh, history books. So, the, the, you know, for example, a book like First John, they're going to, you know, go through and label, here's the point, God is love, God is light, and uh, this leads to this, and here are the tests uh, uh, to know you're, you're in Christ. Whereas a book like First Samuel is more like once upon a time, right? Uh, they show you, they don't just tell you, they show you. So here, the author takes pains to show you, slows down, and all it's And all Goliath's power and all his painful detail, he had a helmet of bronze, verse 5, on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. For those of you, 5,000 shekels, uh, if you're metric, (laughs) that's uh, 125 pounds. Can you imagine? Coat of armor, 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs. So you can imagine these greaves. And a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. <laughs> and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's 15 pounds. Can you imagine? How strong would you have to be to lift up a spear with a bowling ball at the end of it? And throw it. Ponder that for a second, right? Can you imagine how effective I would be? <laughs> I got and his shield this is this always this line always tickles me don't miss that very last part of the verse and his shield bearer went uh, verse 7 and his shield bearer went before him kudos to that shield bearer you know um if it were me <laughs> i think i would say after you walking fortress <laughs> anyway i just think it's like at that point why anyway so not only the point is not only is he experienced 
but he's massive, and he's technologically superior in military technology. Remember, uh, if you remember a few chapters ago, if you've been following along, at one point there's only two swords in all of Israel. Saul had one, Jonathan had one. All the blacksmiths, remember, were in the land of the Philistines, and Goliath is armed in such a way that nothing can touch him. He is a walking, impenetrable fortress. Got it? Man, my 10,000 shekels are on Goliath for sure. Wouldn't yours be? And he stood, verse 8, and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? That's a fair question, by the way. Why are we putting our boots on every day? Why are we coming to this battle? There is no battle. You're over there. We're over here. Nobody's actually fighting. And Goliath calls him out on it. What are you guys really doing here? I mean, we're an army. We're supposed to be fighting. And yet, I don't see any fighting. So why, why are you even here? Why have you come out for battle? And then he says an interesting speech. Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose, he calls out Saul by name. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. See, there it is. If I'm the, I'm the champion, my victory will be credited to all. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Still no reaction. The Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel. He said, I, I don't know what other trash talk I need to say to provoke you guys, but I, I, I defy you. That, this is all I know to say. I defy the ranks, the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Give me a man. Now, who's this man going to be? Now, isn't the answer obvious to Israel at this point in the story? Who should it be? If you've been following along in this series, who should this man be? Goliath literally names him. Someone would say in the armies of Israel, we've got a man. That's what we pick. Give me a man sounds exactly like Israel. Give us a king. The man is Saul. It's got to be Saul. Isn't this what you wanted, Israel? You wanted a king like all the other nations. And what did you want a king for? Remember chapter 8? A king will go out and fight our battles for us. Anybody remember this? That's why we wanted a king. It's got to be Saul. And on top of all that, what was Saul known for? As he's mentioned in Scripture, chapter 8, chapter 9, what's he mentioned for? He's specifically noted for his height. So it's like, hey, Goliath's got their tall champion. Saul, the Bible takes pains to point out, was a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And he's the one with the armor. They mentioned Goliath's armor. Later we'll see Saul has, he can match him armor for armor. And maybe not quite as heavy, but you know, got got the tech. Saul is the obvious natural candidate to go fight Goliath. A king, yes, that's what Israel wanted, a king. Because a king will go out and fight our battles. What is our choice for king doing? Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Ah, come on, Saul. Isn't that what we've seen over and over in Scripture? Saul was the king they wanted, but he was not the king they needed. Only good thing I suppose you can say for Saul is that he wasn't alone. It's not like he was the only one who was afraid and everybody else was brave. All Israel was right there with him. And who can blame him? Who in their right mind would go and fight against this impenetrable fortress on two legs? Now, in a way, chapter 17, right here, Dale Ralph Davis points this out. I I think he's right. In a way, this is an immediate test for the readers. 
It's an immediate test. You know, sometimes a teacher will do that. They'll give the lesson, then they'll give what's called a pop quiz. They didn't tell you it was coming. They just want to find out, have you been listening to what I'm saying? Chapter 17, I believe, is a pop quiz in the Bible. It's a pop quiz. You say, what's the quiz about? What's the test? There's so much emphasis on Goliath in these first 11 verses. It's hard to miss this guy. He's armed to the teeth. And what does the text draw your attention to? Everyone's scared. Why? Look at his height. Hmm? Look at his weaponry. Hmm? Look at his stature. Look at his outward appearance. See the test? See the pop quiz? His height, his stature, his outward appearance. But haven't we just read Less than a chapter ago, haven't we just read 1 Samuel 16, 7? Do you remember? Have you memorized 1 Samuel 16, 7? Pastor BJ preached on it last week. Do you you remember this? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look. Here he's talking about Eliab versus little David out there in the field. Do not look on, listen to these verses. Listen to this verse. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So this is our first smooth stone. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. In a way, this famous story, chapter 17, is really just supplying an example of chapter 16, verse 7. In chapter 16, verse 7, it basically says, don't be fooled by outward appearances. Don't look the way man looks. Man is always impressed by weaponry and outward appearances and the height of his stature. And oh, it's so impressive. But God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. This applies to our finest choices and most formidable enemies. Listen to what I mean. The Christian life is a life of faith. That means you've got to stop fixing your eyes on outward appearances. And walk by faith. You can't always trust your eyes. Things are not always what they seem. Finest luxuries and fiercest enemies, this comes up the most. What do I mean? Finest luxuries. Oh, if I only had that. Oh, on the outside, that is what I need to be fulfilled. Yeah, see, if I had that job, if I had that relationship, if I had that home, if I had a better place, if I had, if I had, if I had that new toy, if I had that, all these, all the finest luxuries, that's what would fulfill. The Lord looks, don't look at the outward appearances and be impressed by that. Fiercest enemies, same thing. I'll never overcome this addiction. That person I'm praying for will never get saved. I'll never overcome anxiety. Why? It looks so formidable. It looks so fear. Ah, that's outward appearances talking. Let me say it this way. Those luxuries, those idols that want to replace God ain't that good. And those enemies who fight against God ain't that tough. You got it? Why? Because we see outward appearances. The Lord looks at the heart. Now, there's more more to Goliath's challenge than meets the eye. Goliath knows that the people of Israel have a God named Yahweh. And he has his own God. You remember from chapter 5? His God was Dagon. Uh, If you know the end of the story, it is delicious irony that what happened to Dagon, remember he fell over and his head came off. Okay, The challenge of verse 8 
is really a test of their confidence in their God, and Goliath knew it. So when he's saying, am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? What he's basically, let me, Roger Ellsworth paraphrases it like this. He's saying, am I not a pagan, God-hating Philistine? (laughs) Then why won't any of your men of the, quote, you you know, your servants of the living God, the most high God, why won't you fight me? You all say you trust in Yahweh, But you must not believe him at all because you believe that a nine-foot warrior is actually stronger than your living God when it comes to a real battle. So talk all you want about how your faith and trust is in a living God. Apparently, it's not. Apparently, this is what it takes to be stronger than Yahweh God. The world still delights to pose such tests for Christians, do they not? The world might say, we know what you're taught in Sunday school, but let's see how you do when faced with a real-life sexual temptation, Hmm? Ah, uh, we, 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 we know what you learn in church, but let's see, when you get an opportunity to gain wealth by cheating, hmm? let's see the look on your God-praising face when you receive that terrifying medical diagnosis or your stock portfolio crashes. Then what? Let's see how you respond in the real world. The issue is always, do you really love and trust God's power and grace, or are you enamored with outward appearances? Now, I want you to see, every one of these Israelite soldiers were orthodox in their theology, There were no secret, I don't think, there were any secret Dagon Bible studies happening in the ranks of Israel. They weren't weren't losing their their profession of faith. They they knew all the right stuff. There was no secret theological societies. What they forgot was 1 Samuel 16, 7. God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Years ago, Craig Rochelle wrote a book that I bought on the strength of its ironic title. The book was called Christian Atheist. I said, well, this I got to see. So I read the book Christian Atheist, and he was using it, he was sort of baiting uh, uh, people like me to buy the book. I'm glad I did. He makes a great point. He says, these are folks who profess with their lips all about Christianity, but they live their life in such a way that God never enters in. Uh, they, 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 they profess Christianity, they say they're Christian, but their day-to-day life reveals that they're practical atheists. So it seems the entire Israelite army is a practical atheist, Saul included, looking at outward appearances and impressed by what they see on the outside. Well, suddenly the camera shifts focus, and we're introduced to a new character in the story. I can't help reading 1 Samuel 17. Uh, Some of it reads like I imagine a movie, and here, you know, just like in a movie, the The camera shifts focus, and now, verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah, named Jesse. Who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man that's Jesse was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So almost like a movie, the camera's switching back and forth from the, Beth, from the battle to Bethlehem. To the battle to the Bethlehem. And apparently this is going on long enough. Can you imagine? 40 days or a month and a half, this, uh, uh, this Philistine is coming out mocking the armies of the living God. So the tension is building. Then comes the fateful sandwich delivery. Look at verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, take 
Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Armies weren't funded like they are today. In some ways you had to provide your own armaments and your own rations. And what we have in verses 17 and 18 are the world's first door dash. David must be younger than 20 because that's the age the Old Testament specifies. You can join the army and he's called upon to take these provisions, bring back some news. My point is sandwich delivery is a very small, insignificant job. Is it not? Little did David realize that morning that the defining challenge of his life, the thing for which he would be immortalized. I mean, literally, if you go to, what's that museum in Florence, and there's a big statue Michelangelo made, like, like, literally, he would be immortalized, was a mere few hours ahead. He thought it was a sandwich run. Everybody see? That leads us to stone number two. There's no such thing as a small job in the kingdom of God. No such thing as a small job in the kingdom of God. You say, yeah, well, you know, God has called me to, to get up, and uh, some days I don't want to get up, but I get up, and I, I, I go do my work, and I put food on my table, and I provide for my family, and it's very insignificant. What is that? No, 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 no. There's no such thing as a small job. Even here in the church, well, you know, I just, I just clean this every once in a while. I, I help here. I just, I, you know, I, I, I go on this mission trip. I serve as a greeter. I, I work in the nursery. Nobody sees. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's no such thing as a small job in the kingdom of God. David getting up early and going to take these provisions reminds us we don't know what challenge awaits us on any given day. Now let me ask you, would you pray more earnestly if we did realize those possibilities? In other words, David, uh, a sandwich run is, uh, okay, David probably had his quiet time that, this morning and, he, and he's praying, okay, Lord, let me, uh, uh, let me uh, uh, do a good job on my sandwich run Definitely take care of my sheep. I got to find a substitute like a dog sitter. You know, I, I got to help me find that. You know, perfunctory prayers perhaps. Would he have prayed differently knowing what awaited him in just a few hours? And Lord, should I face a nine foot nine walking impenetrable fortress? Give me the grace to overcome and kill a giant. Like what? Let me ask you it this way. How would your daily prayers change? if you just stopped and pondered that there's no small jobs in the kingdom of God. One ancient commentary has a prayer like this. He suggests praying. Can you imagine praying in the morning like this? For all I know, this may be the most important day of my life. But it's really true. For all you know, today, July 3rd, may be the most important day of your life. We don't know. So anyway, he goes on. There may be an opportunity given to me of doing great service for the cause of truth and righteousness. Or there may be a temptation befall me to deny my Lord and ruin my soul. So God, be not far from me this day. Prepare me for all that thou preparest for me. Let me read that last line again. He says, prepare me for all that thou hast preparest for me. In other words, whatever you've got in store for me today, Lord, let me be ready for it. Why? Because there's no small jobs in the kingdom of God. Well, back to the army. I would say back to the action, but with Israelites' army, it's back to the inaction. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Right here, it's like, well, not exactly. (laughs) 
That's the point. They're getting their boots laced up every day, but they're not, there's no actual fighting. And David rose early in the morning. Good for David, industrious. Left the sheep with a keeper. Good, David, responsible. Took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. Good for you, David, obedient. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Again, this is incredible to me. Like the whole point, the writer keeps taking pains to point out they're doing all this war stuff, but they're not actually fighting. They're not doing the one thing they're supposed to be doing. And here they've got, they've got a whole war cry. They've got entire cheerleaders going, right? The whole thing. Rah, rah, let's do it. We can do it. Well, apparently we can't do it, right? What, what kind of war cry? I'd love to get a copy of their war cry for irony, right? <laughs> we're the best. We're the strongest. We can do it. We're not, we're not going to do it, but theoretically we could do it. <laughs> Here they, I don't want to linger too long on this, but I don't want to linger too, well, I already divided the message into two. I suppose we can make it three. <laughs> we won't. But um, isn't there some sort of indictment that here you have a group of people who have the power of God and all you get out of them is a bunch of noise? Is that not in any way an indictment of the kind of faith that sings loudly on Sundays but doesn't actually trust God enough to live for him Monday through Saturday. I took that as a word of challenge and conviction to me when I read it. A lot of noise, you know, preaching and proclaiming. But where's the action? Faith. Well, verse 21, And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. After all, once he heard the war cry and he saw them lining up, he figured, I can't believe it. I have arrived just at the very moment the armies are going to engage. He doesn't know that this has been going on for 40 days and Goliath has made this same, you know, spiel and they haven't done anything. So he he doesn't have time to make the sandwich delivery. He leaves it with the, the quartermaster there who's in charge of receiving such sandwiches and he runs out there. He can't believe it. And he sees his brothers what you know and as he talked with them behold you know what's going on what's going on the brothers are like listen for yourself behold the champion the in-between man the philistine of gath goliath by name came up out of the ranks of the philistine and spoke the same words as before and we know the words right defy the armies of the living god and david heard them Uh, you say well yeah everybody heard him yeah i think everybody heard him but david actually heard him for what he was Don't skip that last little bit there. David actually heard. I think they were hearing but not listening. So all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, it's interesting, that's the whole point. They're focused on 1 Samuel 16, 7, outward appearance. When they saw the man, fled from him, and and were much afraid. Now verse 25 is what we might call the word on the street. Verse 25 is the rumor mill. Have you heard? Have you seen the men of Israel? Have you seen this fellow? You heard about this? Have you seen this man who's come up? They're all talking. Do you hear what the, do you hear? This is getting serious. The king, who by the way was supposed to be the one to go fight Goliath, the king has instead really sweetened the deal. Surely he's come up to defy Israel. Actually, what Goliath said was he defied the armies of Israel, but they extrapolated to say he defies all of Israel. So this is either a battle between Goliath and the armies of Israel or Goliath and all of Israel, according to the soldiers. And, and, and here's what the king will do. Look at this. The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. 
He's got a bounty out on Goliath. Anybody want to take this challenge? I'll make you rich. Uh, some people are still not convinced. I'll give him his daughter to marry. Oh, okay, so now you, you've married into the king's family. You get a, 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 a marriage. Okay. And finally, make his father's house free in Israel. What does this mean? Everybody pays tax to the king. Everybody has to enlist in the king's army. Everybody works for the king. This person who kills Goliath, you're free. I love that, and I also have to laugh at the ascending order of that. Great riches, I don't know. A marriage, eh, what else you got? No taxes, sold. <laughs> like that's what gets your attention. And David said to the men who stood by him. Now in modern day English, uh, verse 26, David is saying, I'm sorry, what? Look at verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, he's incredulous. It's not that he can't hear, it's that he can't believe. I'm sorry, what? What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So you may not know this, but this is the first time David has spoken in the Bible. I don't mean it's the first time he ever spoken in his life. I mean, this is the, these are the first recorded words of David. Up until now, he has been a literary mute. And now the shepherd boy from Bethlehem speaks. And when he speaks, did you notice? He does something no one else has done in the entire narrative. He inserts the first theological note to the whole story. Up until now, you can go back and look if you want. God has not been mentioned once until the shepherd boy from Bethlehem says with a whole new worldview see the whole narrative has been godless not in the sense it's been offensive in the sense that God has not been factored at all into the planning and David points out what is so obvious to him yeah I'm sorry about all that rewards that's one thing but who's this uncircumcised he should defy the armies of the living God, the, the, the army, Goliath thought he was defying the army, and the people in the army thought he was defying all of Israel. They can only think in two dimensions. But David asks, what about God? David adds a third dimension to this thinking. What about God? What is God? Does, we have a living God. Does a living God not make a difference in all this? Not that that's a, some sort of magic charm, but it's surely instructive. It says we've got to have the right starting point. We've got to ask the right question first. If someone were to enter your thoughts and your heart's desires and the way you go through your life, would anybody ask, would they expect that you, have, that you serve a living God? Does the fact that the grave is empty, that you serve a living God, does it make any difference in your day to day? All the people can think about is what will happen uh, or what might happen, uh, the terrible things that will happen or the really good things. If I could somehow muster up the courage and fight Goliath, I'd get rich and I'd have no taxes and I'd have this marriage. Two dimensions. David thinks through everything with God in the picture and he sees in three dimensions and that makes the picture change. And so that's the third stone. Always ask, what about God? But what about God? Doesn't God have anything to say in this situation? David is so consumed with God that he sees everything through a theocentric lens. He says, well, what does God have to say? I've heard this brute. <laughs> I've heard this enemy of God, but has anyone heard from the Lord? I, 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 know, I know what the doctor's report said, but what, I'm waiting to hear from the Lord. I, I know about this wayward child, but what about God? I know about that hopelessness, but what about God? I know about that job situation, but what is God doing in the midst of that? 
I know, but you don't understand, Pastor, I got this addiction. But what about God? Yeah, but I, I, I got this anxiety. I'll never overcome. Whoa, 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 what about God? What, what, what about the living God? David is consumed with God, with the glory of God. He, his, his mind is, is, I mean, the spirit rushed upon him at his anointing. And so it stands to reason that he's worried about, well, what about God's glory? He's concerned about God. What is God up to? What is God doing? Uh, years ago, there was a, a group of ministers who had gotten together for a citywide campaign, a crusade in a, uh, in a city. And uh, they were considering bringing in the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. You know the story? And, uh, and so uh, one of the ministers pipes up and says, D.L. Moody. Always D.L. Moody. He says, Has, does D.L. Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? Yeah, to which everybody, you know, nobody talked about D.L. Moody that way. Uh, but the oldest minister in the group said, uh, no, young man, D.L. Moody does not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. Does God have a monopoly on your life? There's always two dimensions. What's going to happen? What good things? What bad things? Always, Or is it, what about God? Does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on David's life, didn't he? I mean, think about the Psalms he wrote. Think about the old king sitting on his throne at sundown, thinking about years ago when a little shepherd boy slew a giant with a stone, and he says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, because the same God who is faithful to that little boy is same God who's faithful to Israel, who's faithful through a thousand generations. David knew, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. The Holy Spirit had a monopoly on David. How Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The faithfulness of God is just as mighty as when the shepherd slew a giant with a stone. Well, the people answered his question. It's funny, they didn't answer the God question at all. They said, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. They never really answered David's second question, which was, who does this guy think he is? Well, my heart's desire was to get through verse 30. Let's go for it. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Just one last, one last point here. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Now, David brings up the God question, and just like the older brother, they'll say, ah, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. I mean, come on, Eliab probably still smarted from being passed over. Nobody likes to be passed over. Nobody likes to feel like you were dismissed, and we went with somebody else. Nobody likes that feeling, and that happened in the whole anointing for king. And so perhaps he's still smarting from that. And so his bitterness, which is really against God, does what it always does. It pours out onto other people. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Huh. Well, I mean, that's really passive aggressive, isn't it? <laughs> like, why have you come down? And what about your meaningless job that, you know? And David, of course, could have said so many little brother things. I came here to bring your sandwiches. You're welcome, right? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? My neighbor. I took care of that. Go back and read earlier verses. He didn't say any of that. Most of all, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And here, little brothers everywhere wish David had said, what battle? That's the point. 
I'd love to see a battle. Anybody got a battle, I can watch. Because nobody's battling. He didn't say that, and you're not allowed to add the scripture. Revelation said that's very bad. So, and David said, what have I done? This is such a great little brother comment. What I do now? Can you picture every little brother in the world? I, what was it? Not a, was it not but a word? The NIV says, can I even speak? This is the most brother-to-brother interaction I've ever seen. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Now, uh, I know that uh, uh, little brothers can relate, but there's more going on here. Where have you heard those exact words before? Go back and look at them. Eliab said to David, his anger kindled, and he said, why have you come down? Do you see that? I think that's in verse uh, 28. There it is. Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? Where have you heard those exact words before? You've heard them in this very passage from the mouth of none other than Goliath. Eliab is a mini Goliath. David has to fight, you might say, multiple Goliaths before he gets to Goliath. But here, the very Goliath who says, why have you come down, says to Eliab, uh, Eliab says to David, why have you come down? Now, there's several applications here. One is, it's always easier to criticize your brother than it is to repent from not fighting the fight you should be fighting. Uh, I forget who, but some director of a missions agency said, before I assign a missionary to the field, I want to know if they fought with the enemy. What do you mean by that? Have they fought with the enemy? Have they faced the real enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil? And do they have some battle scars? Have they ever had to really wrestle against the real enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil? I won't put them on the missionary field unless they fought with the enemy. He says, why? Because if a Christian hasn't fought with, if they don't fight with the enemy, they will fight with their brothers. If they're not engaged in the fight against the enemy, they'll fight against the brothers. And that's what Eliab's doing here. There's nobody else to fight. Let me pick on David. Well, Who do you think you are? You can hear the contempt. Inserting God into everything. You're just a pipsqueak. Why have you come down here? Well, we made it through verse 30, so we'll end here. We'll pick up next week. But you see that the point of this whole book, doesn't this bring us somewhere? Where else have we heard this? To look down on the little brother, to think you you can't be trusted. Goliath represents all that's evil and, 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 and all the sin and death in the world and into all this darkness. You, you've come, a little pipsqueak, with your God talk. Eliab, looking down at David, reminds us of another little boy from Bethlehem and his family. Didn't they say in Mark uh, chapter 3, I mean, I mean, weren't they always saying, wait a minute, who is this, who is this uh, carpenter? From Galilee. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Mark 3, verse 20. Then Jesus went home, and once again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples couldn't eat. And when his family heard it, listen for Eliab, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, and they said, He's out of his mind. Sounds just like Eliab. And the world today looks at Jesus the same way. Hold on, hold on. This story, 1 Samuel, there's so many personal applications. Yes, you can overcome your Goliath through the power of God, but I don't think that's fundamentally what the text is saying. What the text is saying, the Lord delivers. What about God? What is God doing? God can be trusted. God accomplishes his purposes. And haven't we said over and over as we look through 1 Samuel, the entire book, the whole Old Testament, whispers the name of Jesus. It points us to Jesus, to the true and better David. And the world looks the same way at Jesus. The world would say, you're telling me this carpenter from that. Are you honestly telling me? Are you telling me? I'm sorry. You Christians are actually telling me 
that in a world that has lost its mind with so much evil and wickedness and murder and disease and sin and suffering and pain and evil, you're telling me that the solution to all that rests on the shoulders of a, of a carpenter from Galilee? The word of God makes exactly that very claim. Yes. He said, but that doesn't make any sense. No, you'll see. The Lord doesn't look at outward appearances. The Lord looks at the heart. And if I could ask, the musicians are going to come and help us in a time of response. And if I could ask you to ponder this great champion, this great in-between man. You know, Goliath, boy, uh, uh, so much fear and he looks so impenetrable. The ultimate undefeated one in our day and age, the Goliath behind all the Goliaths, in my opinion, is death. Uh, we all stand, do we not? We all, who can overcome? We all stand on the precipice of that valley. One out of every one dies. We all have to face death. And anyone who says, you know, I don't think about that too much. I don't think about death. I'd believe you. But anybody who says, I think about that a lot, and I'm not troubled by it. I'm not scared. I'm sorry. I don't believe you. I think you're being disingenuous. I'm sorry. Death comes for us all. And if you're not thinking about that, uh, think a little harder. And so I don't know who this is for. This may just be for one person. It may just be for a couple. But can I just ask you point blank, just, just you and me, just as if I was asking you over a cup of coffee, when it comes to facing death, who is your in-between man? Who is your champion? What comes in between you and death? Uh, being separated from God, from your loved ones forever. Is, is there any? It, really, is it, is it yourself? Is it your own good deeds? That, what is that? Well, it's, it's I don't know, I, just not knowing. So, 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 so sort of blissful ignorance, that's no champion. And then I would want to tell you the greatest news that any preacher ever gets to tell, and that's this. Listen, when it comes to facing death, heaven has sent a champion. Just like David, if you know the end of the story, charged in and defeated Goliath. In the same way, our Lord Jesus, he was crucified on a cross. And on the third day, he faced that great Goliath of death and came out the other side. Easter Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. He is our champion. He is our in-between man. He is the one. And his victory is credited to all who believe. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Be saved today. And you can say, if you do that, do you realize, if you do that, if you say, I place my faith and trust in the true and better David, in the champion, Jesus Christ, who charged into that valley and came out the other side. He was resurrected. If you say that, you will be able to say, with the main character in today's story, David, you know what he wrote? He wrote this psalm where he said, yea, though I walk. I don't know if he was thinking about the valley of Eli or not, but he said, yea, though I walk, through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Here's why. For thou art with me. You will be able to say that as you face that ultimate Goliath, or any Goliath in between, but as you face death, you will be able to say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And there's much more. We'll dive back in, verse 31, God willing, next Sunday. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you grant us the eyes of faith. Too many times we are guilty and we confess our guilt of 1 Samuel 16, 7. We 
see like man sees, we look at the outward appearance and we're impressed by that when we should see like you see, the eyes of faith. God, we ask that you would grant to us the courage to believe there's no small jobs in the kingdom of God. And grant that in everything we look at this week, we might ask the God question, but what about God? What are you doing? And if there's anyone here who is facing death with no in-between man, with no champion, they're facing death without you, that today would be the day they receive you as Lord and Savior and heaven's champion for them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.